Hi, I'm Lex Marinos, and... Hello, I'm Patricia Ramflett. You're listening to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century, across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week we chat with leading health, lifestyle, finance and fitness experts about how to get the most out of life as we age. Plus we talk with well-known and not-so-well-known Australians of all generations about the issues that affect them. So tune in and... Get connected. connected. Stay connected. Ah, uh, hello and welcome to Baby Boomer's Guide to Life in the 21st Century. My name is Patricia Amphlett and here is... My name is also Patricia Amphlett. Who would have thought you'd get a program with two people called Patricia Amphlett? It's uncanny, really. Lex Marinos. Ah, oh, that's what I used to be called before I changed my name by Deepole. It's nice to be with you all, and I hope there's an all out there listening. Oh, of course there is. It's lovely to see you, Patricia. You're looking radiant. What's on the show today, Patricia? Very loved, much loved Australian is Geraldine Doog, and she's going to talk about the fabulous 90 years of ABC. With particular reference to uh, current affairs, that's been the... The banner of the ABC over that period of time. My word. Great friend of this show, in fact. And another remarkable woman taking us to Nostalgia Town is investigative journalist Kate McClymont. Oh, boy, hasn't she had a life? So, so far we have two great women. Now, Money Extra, he's a great bloke. His name's Noel Whitaker. Capital gains tax. Do you know what capital gains tax is? No, no I'll right. find out soon, won't I? Yes, we will. And we're visiting Mildura to uh, step out with Judy Ann Steed from local radio station 3MDR. So that's all in the show. Plus, of course, Jeff's Cafe. Oh, look, I, I don't oh, know if I should say this, but there have been lots of trucks outside and they've all got Department of Health. <laughs> I've got a bit of news for you, Patricia, about Jeff's Cafe. You <laughs> what know, is it, Lex? The guest barista today is Lockie Hilda. You know, young Lockie, when we started doing this show 15 years ago, Lockie was just still in his pram, he just toddling around, you know, and he just had a pair of headphones on and that was basically all he wore, particularly in summer. And anyway, he's now grown up to be Lockie Hilda. He's 17 years old and he's a technical wizard. He's uh, he's doing, he's do, in fact, he's doing this program as part of his uh, final year um, presentation. <laughs> That's terrific news. Lucky, we welcome you. Yes, good on you, Lucky. And let's get on with the show. Geraldine Doog, AO, an Australian Media Hall of Fame inductee. Geraldine has graced the nation's airwaves for nearly 40 years. Most of those have been with the ABC, which in 2022 celebrated its 90th anniversary. Geraldine received the United Nations Association of Australia Media Peace Award, two Penguin Awards for her role in ABC TV's coverage of the Gulf War. She's presented iconic ABC TV programs nationwide, Compass, on radio. She's done Radio National's Life Matters. Currently, we enjoy her on the international news or presenting international news through Radio National's Saturday Extra program. I feel as though, Geraldine, you have been there for the whole 90 years of the ABC. <laughs> Sometimes it feels like that. I have to say hello, Lex. I, I, It's actually, I've been in journalism, you know. I realised this year, 50 years, oh, hasn't no. all been on a, a television and radio. You know, I started with print. But you know how you suddenly sit and you think, Oh, hang on, 1972, that is 50 years. And it's anyway, it's it's one of Indeed. those amazing things. So what, what do, that's a good point to start, Geraldine. What does it take to achieve such longevity in the high-pressure world of news and current affairs? 
Well, look, I think you do have to be pretty resilient and you do have to have your ego in check. You say you need a bit of ego, most definitely, possibly a lot of ego, but then you have to have it in check to last. It's a quite interesting trick. And I think a lot of the younger ones are sort of learning it as they get into their 40s. You've got to then harness it in order, you know, so you sort of pull back in order to go forward. And and that's quite a a learning, I think. Mm -hmm. So you're talking about 50-year career. Um, what have you observed about the ABC in that uh, period? How has it changed since you first joined it? Oh, look, I think the ABC at the moment, I think, is in a bit of a struggle to adapt to constant budget cuts. I mean, this sounds so tedious and I didn't want, and I also refuse to be bowed, you know, by the sense of constant budget cuts. But then you finally realise that your organisation, which you treasure so much, is actually finding some real difficulties when the budget cuts start to really go into the bone. And I mean, at the moment, it's it's having to adapt to this incredibly changing society of ours. I do think the international coverage, which I think it was really a hallmark of it um, in the years that I was, you know, watching from afar and then joining, I think it's not quite what it was. There's genuine anxiety in there, correctly, about being as diverse. We should be far more diverse than we are. But, you know, getting to that point is tricky again. What do you abandon in order to make sure that you get different people coming through the door and so on? It just, it, it's not what you call a serene time at the ABC. Has it ever been? Um, <laughs> well, looking back, I think there were times when we were far more confident of ourselves. There's all it's a strange organization. I was just talking to Fran Kelly yesterday, strangely enough, and she's, you know, got this new program, Frankly, on, which yes. I don't know whether you've watched, but Indeed. you know, I'm incredibly proud of her that she's got that up, you know, after 17 years on Radio National Breakfast, getting up at 3 30 oh. in the morning. And she's got it on, you know, 8 30 Friday night, for God's sake, you know, talk about anxiety creating. <laughs> and I think she's doing really a good job. Um, but she was just commenting that there hadn't been a lot of overt comment to her from within the ABC, you know, praising or other. And it's not a place that comes out and celebrates its own, whereas they do at commercial networks, you know. It's yes, quite indeed. quite interesting the difference. I now you've got to learn to deal with that. You just you've got to come to terms with that and say, okay. <laughs> I don't need it. Uh, I'll just carry. And then, of course, you do get you get gorgeous little bit little bits of feedback come through, and that's lovely. But as for sort of a, a generalized, you know, here we are and we're proud of us. It happens at a ninetieth and it happens at a sixtieth. You know, mm -hmm. should be. Look, I, I should just digress for a moment and declare my own conflict of interest here, because I can say for the last fifty years, if it hadn't been for ABC TV and ABC Radio. Um, I don't know what I would have done, so I, I need to just state that yep. up front. But, um, you know, you mentioned Fran as an example of the outstanding journalists and producers that have graced ABC airwaves and television. You would have worked with uh, many, many of them, mm. and I know it's invidious to single any out, but can you give us some, who stands out for you, Geraldine? What What kind of impact did they have on you and on the reporting of current affairs? Oh, well, look. Caroline Jones definitely does stand out. I mean, she became a very good friend. And of course, she, you know, she died early this year, which was very sad, although I don't really think that Caroline would have wanted to linger on. So there mm -hmm. we are. Uh, Caroline did really, um, I think, in ways that you only really 
grasp when you're growing older yourself that she just set a standard. There was a she both went television, radio. I still remember her, her city extra on um, yes. uh, 2BL and the crosses with Clive Robertson and everything, the wit <laughs> and all of that. You know, we can all remember it. And um, Caro was uh, never stopped trying, never stopped adapting, never stopped creating. You know, they really mentoring young Indigenous female journalists, setting up that, um, working with the women in the media at the Caroline Jones Ward for Young Regional Journalists and so on and so forth. So she made a big difference. Look, Kerry O'Brien, now I'm going television first, then I'll go radio because I, I actually reckon radio should have more of a more of a Guernsey. But Kerry was one of those people. I'm not, I don't defend everything Kerry did, not for a moment. But Kerry was a big character, mm, afraid mm. of nothing. And there was some sort of real sense of great drama around Kerry, if you know what I mean, that that uh, I, again, never forgot. I do think that in radio, I do think Radio National uh, has just – I feel so honoured to have been part of Radio National, even though I, I started in news in when I came to a, the ABC. I think in Radio National, I think it's a pearl in Australia. and. You know, its slogan, think bigger, maybe it's saying it too much, but gee, who else says that? <laughs> That's what Australians need to do. And I've, oh, look, I've worked with a lot of people of there who've behind the scenes and marvellous sound engineers. Oh, it just, I really don't want to single out more. I mean, I think Tony Jones was an excellent foreign correspondent. He was a sort of fantastic character. I think Australian story has done some marvellous stuff there. So, look, there's a lot. <laughs> yes, of course there is, of course. And But just uh, dwelling on, on Caroline Jones mm. for a moment, um, and, uh, and subsequently Margaret Throsby, mm. it was hard to to break through that glass ceiling. I remember it at the time. You know, there were, I mean, there were the most absurd theories going around that women's voices were not suited to radio. Mm. What mm. an absurd thing to say now, in retrospect. I but know. It was difficult, wasn't it? Oh, yes. And they had to – it's it's only now that we're getting, I think, um, a lot of real deep granular thinking about the nature of internalised prejudice that you realise what they did break through with, you know, how much they – you had to, you you played much more, I mean, even I who came in, you played much more of the boys game, I think, because yeah. the boys could be very good indeed, you know, the idea that they weren't, I always say this, they were exceptionally talented, game, innovative, but I think the really clever thing was to work out how you did your stories and see Caroline did, I think she really blazed that hybrid role. She had a very wide curiosity and she she employed that curiosity. And of course, she was incredibly witty. She's incredibly witty. Mm, mm. Humor is a very valuable tool. And Fran yesterday was saying to me, she, you know, in terms of they're sort of still devising, frankly, you know, and yes. she said, um, they want me to be, they write jokes, but I'm not funny. She said, I'm not funny. You know, and I really respected it. She said it with a complete straight face. She's right. That's not her skill base. That's right. Know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you are, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm not. And yeah, but she's I'm not, not. Fran. <laughs> <laughs> Geraldine, but what about do any particular stories stand out for you, particularly ones that ABC has aired that, that wouldn't have made it on commercial networks? Can well, you make that distinction? Uh, well, I don't think, for instance, going back, I, I was particularly because, you know, your producer said, look, think about this. 
I was thinking of a lot of the Chris Masters, Peter Manning stories. I could cite Peter Manning too, who was a marvellous mm, um, mm. head of news and current affairs. I mean, he was, you know, really memorable. Now, some several of those, the um, Moonlight State, talking about corruption in Queensland, which prompted the um, Fitzgerald Royal Commission, the Big League, about rugby league. Now, imagine that getting onto commercial. Yeah. Ha, ha. No chance. No um, chance. The, uh, the one about the Greenpeace ship, for instance, like there were several of them. Rainbow just, Warrior. Rainbow Warrior, thank you. I think a lot of those would not have, they would never have had a Guernsey. Uh, and you see, and can I cite Australian story too? Because Australian story is part of the news. You might think it's part of features, but it's not. It was a very clever outreach, again, of Peter Manning, who decided we had to do broader stories that amounted to, you might almost call them soft news, you know, the hard, the distinction between hard and soft news. See, I think Australian story was incredibly important in saying to Australians, we have marvellous stories here, great character stories. They trailblaze, they shift the agenda, they're people stories, and they are news. Now, that was a real breakthrough. And that, I, I reckon it's really set the agenda, you know, backed up by the sort of glossy magazines, you know, the Weekend Australian and the and the um, mm. uh, Good Weekend, which, like, I really love that. I think that's beautiful journalism, depth journalism about our people. Now, that used not to happen. Geraldine, we've t- talked about the difficulty initially it was for women to get on air, and and we've talked about the need for diversity. How does ageism fit into that? Oh, what an interesting topic that is. Look, I got a bit of a shock recently at the response when uh, Fran, having done the 17 years, you know, getting up at 3.30 and most definitely done it well, and then finally just sort of thought, no, I can't do another <laughs> day of it, really. Um, when she was given that new role, and there was some very nasty stuff written about ageing people being mm. given things ahead of young ones. And actually, to her great credit, Patricia Carvelis, who succeeded Fran on Breakfast, wrote a very good piece saying, oh, hello, how many older women do we see on television, please? So, look, it showed me that it's still very much alive and well. And it is, you know, if you look at Fran, it's it's a very interesting phenomenon. So, Fran, she lost a lot of weight about uh, two or three years ago. She went on a, a particular diet for a partner, actually, and she got right back to being, she said, she she told me, she thought, she said, I'm, I look like I did when I was 17. Well, you know, would that I could sort of thing. And, and, I th- <laughs> and yet, when you see that, so she looks... Gammon and young yes. in her body, but her face, uh, you know, you can see age on her face and you can, the maturity though, the numbers of interviews she's done shows in the quality of the interviews. And I thought that's an intriguing decision they've made, if you know what I mean. There aren't many, well, I mean, who's on? Jennifer Byrne's not on anymore. Caroline's obviously not on. I'm not on, to, you know, I do things for Compass, but only a, a few um, I mean, that was my choice, but nevertheless, it's true. You know, um, the drum has women in their 40s and 50s, which I'm happy about. So there's lots of women coming through. But as for that maturity, or even for males, I don't think it's there yet. Radio no. does in, does most definitely. Podcasting, come in, come in, world. 
fabulous new opportunities, fabulous. But television, no. Geraldine, a thorny subject is always the relationship between the ABC and government. Yes. Is that an ongoing tension, do you think, that will always be there? Or or is the role of the ABC accepted now and people say, for God's sake, fund it properly? Oh, no, <laughs> I don't think it is. I mean, look, it, there's certainly, it seems to be an easier acceptance with Labor than with the coalition. There's no doubt about that. I'd be stupid if I denied that. Mind you, they got the, I think it's the five yearly funding thing, which they'd been trying to get for years under the last days of the coalition government. Look, I think if anything, it's not going to get any easier because this is how I said, you know, we've all, we had radio and television. That was the standard, you know, they were the two arms of the ABC. Now you've got online as well, which is another stream of funding or, you know, we've got to find that in the budget. A lot of the young ones, you know, they use time-shifted television and radio, and they use a lot of online. And really, we weren't funded for the online. We had to find it out of existing um, existing resources. And I think we we have to appeal to a wide range. And this this community is very divided in taste and etiquette and mores now between our age groups that we're talking to now and the younger ones. And if anything, I reckon that edginess is worse now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think that, like, I do think it gives us quite a lot of issues in the Canberra space. Like the 7pm bulletin is the classic thing. I think that's still very much a shop window front symbolically for a lot of people of our age and a lot of people who are in parliament. But for a lot of people, 50 down, it is not. So how do you... Like, I think if you don't make that 7pm bulletin really sing as your hallmark, um, I think that you damage your reputation. But there's a great debate inside the ABC about precisely that. So is, is there is there a real role for, because many of our listeners are friends of the ABC, mm. is, is there a real advocacy role for them and, and for former journalists like Terry O'Brien? Yes. Yes, I think, and that uh, particularly the alumni, which is slightly you know different from the friends group. I mean, the friends have been absolutely mm-hmm. stalwart for many, many years, and the alumni sort of came in to almost have a second strand. Strand, and I think they have um, really got in there because they more recently left the ABC, and I think they could see it under it really was under pretty acute challenge a couple of years back when they had really chopped about 50 million out of news and you could see it. You could absolutely see it. I think they, to me, they're getting in there and proposing things and writing documents. And I think you've got to know, I do say this to, you know, I get the, you know, you go to awake as I did for John Westacott, the late John Westacott, who was head yes. of 60 Minutes. And I went to the <laughs> cruising yacht club for the wake last week. <laughs> you know, got this stream of people coming up. We want to tell you now, now, they say now and they sigh and I think, here it goes, here we go. And sure enough, ABC is very woke, isn't it? And it's, so then, you know, and I, I and I have to be careful what I say. And so, and, bite your tongue, bite and your tongue. And I do bite my tongue and I, I try to answer them respectfully and I say, look, are the people who are saying this all our age? Well, yes, these were very good people, I might add. And I said, well, look, you know, you've, there are really different tastes coming through. There really are. And we've got, it's a challenge and we've got to come to terms with it. Doesn't mean we surrender to it, 
because in fact, I sometimes think that they've, you know, the ABC's decided the older group, you know, our giant bubble doesn't matter as much. Mm, but mm. but you can't ignore that fact, you know? The thing that I, I, I mean, the thing that I get, and particularly having done some work years ago on news radio, how do you answer the claims of people who are rigid in their belief that the ABC is biased? And I try mm. and explain to them that, mm. that we run a stopwatch on on equal airtime for opposing parties, that everyone is given the right of reply. How do you counter those claims? When someone says to you, oh, yeah, but the, I never watch the ABC because it's too biased. And I know they're lying because I know they do watch it, but they resent watching it. And but that is a double blow. How do you combat blow. that? How do you combat that? Look, I tend to say, look, I know there, I actually don't disagree with them completely because I think it's useless because I think there are definite uh, orthodoxies at the ABC. But what I sort of say to them, look, do you realise how often the, the, the sort of more progressive end of the culture uh, makes stories? They're proposing things. They're proposing a bit of change. They're copy. You know, we have to put things to where we can't just put everything is the same as yesterday. There's not much change. It doesn't go to air like that. We relate the stories of change in the community. That's actually what we do. And so, so we inevitably do cant towards people who are inclined to be like that, if you see what I mean. Mm-hmm. I sort of say, look, I think that a lot of the young ones coming in have got a great desire to to change things. Actually, a lot of the young ones coming in are quite conservative in some ways too. It's quite tricky, <laughs> but they're perverse. They've got a lot of identity. You know, they do all this identity stuff, which drives me spare, to be candid. Mm-hmm. Um, th- there's a lot of that. I end up trying to ask them questions like, where – where does it really annoy you? Tell me where it really annoys you. Where doesn't it annoy you? <laughs> to yeah, try to get yeah. them to be precise. Um, but isn't that part of part of your job at the ABC to provoke thought? Yes, but I do think we have to listen to all sorts of thought. And because of this tribalism that is around these days, particularly augmented by social media, there is a bit of a tendency, I think, to sort of say, well, where do they sit, you know? Like the CIS, Centre for Independent Studies. Oh, sigh. Well, you know, so well, who, who's good there? I think you've got to be relentlessly centrist. That's what yes, I think. Of course. And you've got to work at that. And you've got to, you know, like I, I had John Roskam on recently on that, that dramatic stuff over the the former head of the NAB who'd had to step down, Andrew Thorburn. Do you remember in the whole case of Essendon, which, oh, you know, the world erupted. Of course, Melbourne erupts in that way. Oh, God. And more than Sydney. (laughs) And I said to my team, we weren't going to do it because it was so much of it, you know, we try not to just repeat. And I said, look, we've got to do this. There's so much involved in this story. We've got to find a way to do it. Oh, do we? Yes, we do. So we, I said, we've got to get a woman. We got someone from Cranlana Institute, who a woman called um, Leslie Cannold, who's an ethicist, because there are all sorts of issues of ethics and, you know, timing and so on involved. And we got John Roskam from the Institute of Public Affairs, who has a column in the Fin, who'd written a very good column in the Fin. I thought he's sort of basically saying, why are football clubs? being held to account as to whether they've got a policy on Indigenous advancement or, you know, like, is that is that sensible? Where have we come to? I thought it was a very good idea. Now, the people said, oh, John Ruskin, do you really want John Ruskin on? I said, yes, I really do. 
And in fact, he turned out to be a very good guest. Yes. And various people rang me and said, oh, I can't, I don't like his columns at all, but he sounded really quite good. I actually found myself agreeing with him, astonishingly. Well, now, see, I think that is exactly our role. Okay. Now, now you've mentioned- Now, have I shocked uh, you? Have, have I no, not at you? all. Not at all. Not at all. I, I'm, I'm digesting that, and I, I think you and I agree with you, and I-, I and I'm conscious that that's what happens on the ABC, not just from having been on the inside, but I'm an avid listener across all ABC networks. Yes. And I never feel that a particular barrow is being pushed, or if it is, say, on radio. But you National, like the barrow. You might like the barrow. That's the well, trouble. No, but I'm no, but the, I'm 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 quite prepared for the fact that the next program I hear will be pushing that barrow back to where it yes. came from. So I, I, I don't feel as though I'm being manipulated good. Well, in that I'm sense. Good. I agree with you, but I have to say I think there are – I mean, that's beautifully put the way – there are big, significant strands of the population who do not think like that. They do feel they can't escape it. They can't escape a barrow. And part of the problem is the relentless repetitiveness of modern media because the 24-hour media cycle oh, well, just churns, yes. churns, and you find like – one of the things I will say is people are under so much pressure. You know, there's fewer people. They're asked to do far more in news. God knows how they do it all. But you end up recycling the the intro, if you know what I mean, that was last, you know. Oh, oh well, okay. you're expected to do it. You're expected to do it for online consumption. Indeed. For- Indeed. Television broadcast for radio, for audio broadcast, and you know to write it up as well on to go on the website. That's right. And so, it, whereas in the past, you know, there used to be a standard thing years ago when the people used to do the hourlies because my ex-husband used to do what we call the mm. hourly updates, and there was an absolute rule: you must not let the ten o'clock hourly go to air with the same script as the That's nine right. o'clock. You have to fiddle with it, even if it was a few words, the odd verb. Well, now I reckon that's gone out the window. Seems to have. But then that's, that raises that subject, which we, you touched on earlier, about online consumption. And, and you know, the genie is very much out of the bottle on that front. Mm. Um, I mean, it's unquestionably the biggest technological change we've seen in our lifetimes. Mm. And I remember, along with everyone else, I heralded the advent of democracy, democratic access to media. And it's turned out to be something completely different. Mm. It's turned out now to be fake news. It's unregulated. How do you compete and combat that? Oh, I'm not sure how to answer that. I, I, it, I find it quite, um, I'm quite despondent over it because it, it has released some really atavistic elements in our community and, um, you know, really... Darwinian awful stuff. Uh, do, do, do you think it's a pendulum swing that it's swung, that it needs to swing so far in, in each direction before it can settle in a, in a mid-range? Yes, I do. I think we will get through this somehow. People will choose. I mean, what's happening with Elon Musk at the moment and Twitter is just a very, very, and that is a work in progress. I think Twitter, I, look, what I do notice is that the people can get addicted some very good journalists get addicted to the scroll, you know, the scroll. Um, and I think that they trade that off for good angle getting. This is my 
view. Like to, I was raised right back from the West Australian newspaper and right through, you know, uh, television and radio. You, you get new angles. You advance stories by saying, now, what angle will we take? We know that's, you know, the second power is res- reciting what the story is, but the, what's the new angle? There's a lot less of that happening. And I think it's because they're all scrolling through and reacting. Now, I think we will, that will alter. I think because people will make prestigious careers out of not just scrolling through, you know, it'll take a little yeah. while. But like, you know, I remember reading Andrew Denton, who I think is one of the, the cleverest yes. people to have emerged, you know, he won't touch social media. And there, there was a, a little while ago, there were a range of people interviewed as to who wouldn't touch social media. It was very interesting. They were smart people, you know, they were achieving smart people. Um, so oh, that's my hope. Where do you stand on social media? Oh, do you I don't participate? I, a little. Only uh, you know, I do LinkedIn. In fact, I get a lot of stories out of LinkedIn. I've done little experiments, you know, with posting each week, but I find it takes up so much time. Oh, you know, I, know. I, I can't honestly. How do they have the time? I don't I, know. I don't know, and I keep thinking if I had that kind of time, is that how I would spend it? <laughs> well, see, you see, our generation wouldn't. Um, and actually, I really think this is, yeah, you know, you're not supposed to be <laughs> triumphalist or anything, but I think we we were lucky, you know. We came at a time when our parents still had pretty fixed codes, I think, coming out of World War II, you know, the giant mm-hmm. experience. Yep. And I think we were, for all the problems we were raised with, I think there was a lot of fixed agreed codes and mores about morality and about conduct and raising children. So, And honestly, it's far more fluid now. doesn't mean it's bad. It just means they've all got to go into these debates. They go and, you yeah, know, yeah. it's tiring. <laughs> but, but just, just returning to the internet for, for a moment, I mean, it seems to, to me, with the kind of distance of it from you know the last twenty years or so, it has been important in particularly in totalitarian or countries mm. under totalitarian mm. reign. I mean, I think of the Velvet Revolution, things like that. But how important it was to be able to get those pictures from those actual from the people who were undergoing that that oppression and taking great personal risk to get these stories out to the wider world. So I could see the really constructive and courageous role that that democratic media played in in that sense. Now I start to worry when I see it. Uh, I think, am I just getting one side of the story? Am I just getting propaganda because that's easy? Well, I mean, in Ukraine, that's, that's just a huge issue. You know, like we we constantly are checking ourselves in my team, Saturday Extra, about whether we're subject to Ukrainian or Russian propaganda. Mm. And, you know, don't ever think that goes away. That's been a very interesting, like there's a genuine war on there, which is must be exactly what it was like for our parents, particularly in World War II. You have to thread your way through. So you have to have read enough to have a judgment call. And that's what we've learned. You know, you've got to stay up to date. Now, that takes effort and that takes commitment. See, that's one of the things I I suppose I should say is one of the things the ABC can project to the Australian people is trust. People know where they stand. They know what they don't like. They know what they like. Somebody near Corn, he's a very good market researcher. I don't know whether you know him. He did some work for the ABC board and he told me, look, one of the things I don't know whether you all realise you have is the the population feels they know you 
even if they're annoyed by you. <laughs> you know, it's ne- so yes. that they, they've known you long enough, Geraldine, to know, oh, that's her quirk there, or, you know, the Kerrys or the Carolines or the Frans or whatever. Uh, that, gee, that's gold. That is gold. And I, we, I, you know, bring yeah. the young ones on like that. And I, I love that sense of ownership that, that I have as a listener have about the ABC. It's my ABC. Yeah, I know. You do. <laughs> You do. You really do. And, and so do I. And the yeah. thought of no, you know, the thought of no ABC, I heard a promo of some of the women up in Warhope or wherever it was sort of saying, I really don't know how I would have managed. And it's true, you know, that that uh, the emergency broadcasting, that's a newer strand of the ABC. That's t- oh, wonderful. vital. Wonderful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Vital. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I remember a very chastening experience early on when you know, when complaints came in, I was, I was instructed or I was told that, you know, don't worry, people are more likely to ring in with a complaint than they ever will with, with the bouquet. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and equally, if you make, see, the other thing is making a mistake. That, you know, that doesn't oh. devastate them at all. You get quite the reverse of what you expect. Oh, my God, what have I done? And they come in and they say, you know, keep going. Yes, that was a bit silly, but keep going. <laughs> you should see the text line as I I'm broadcast on Saturday. Well, you should see the text line. Oh, it's hilarious. Geraldine, where to from here, looking into the crystal ball, what will the ABC maintain the role it plays now? You've, you've, we've discussed already great changes that obviously happened and quite appropriately happened with the ABC. How do you see it going in the future? My view is and I express this, I think it should stress what a vital cultural institution it is. I do have a sense that there's been too much emphasis on the news and current affairs aspect of it, as if it's the only thing the ABC does. And yet, my view is that it's got a much wider cultural remit, you know, with the orchestras. It doesn't have that same direct role now with orchestras. Uh, the talks, the boy lectures that are on at the moment with Noel Pearson. Oh, wonderful. I mean, my goodness, no one else in Australia would do those boy lectures. And the Radio National, the countdown, the, uh, you know, the classic countdown 100, that complete sort of introduction to a whole new lot of audience about music for for the screen and for video games. Who's going to do that? Well, indeed. My view is that we've, of course, got to be that shop window front in news and current affairs, but there's a little bit of a tendency in my candid view to overstate that and, and to understate the rest which I think might be, frankly, our political survival is in that broader remit. And do you think in, in areas like drama and children's programming, do you think we'll we'll combat the inevitable, or is globalisation inevitable to the point that we will lose identity? Um, I think that's a, a huge issue. The drama issue is um, it, it will need very deft highly creative people coming in who do twinning with the other other public broadcasters and i think that's a bit of a work in progress at the moment i think i think it's a big challenge so i think you identify the challenges quite rightly and um a lot will depend it's a very interesting sort of symbiotic relationship between the abc having the confidence to say we're going forward as a country, you know, almost emerging from, I sometimes think, teenagerhood, you know, into leaving home, leaving, mm, like moving mm. into the 20, our 20s, uh, even though we're 90. Mm. Um, if we can get more confidence, I don't think at the moment we're super confident. I think it'll help Australia 
uh, get more confidence. But Australia needs to inform us, if you don't, if you don't mind me being too abstract. Like I think this country is on the cusp of real stepping up to a bigger footprint in its own mind as well as the world's. It's just not sure it's quite got the confidence to do it. Well, it's an interesting point because that's that's the the cultural cringe is something that that we grew up with, indeed. Um, and and it is about confidence. And, and but at the same time, I mean, I know with my grandkids, I'm so thrilled when Bluey comes on. <laughs> yes, because yes. I think, thank God, thank God, a little bit of Australian culture. Oh, and have you seen the other one? I think it's called Lunch Bags or Lunchbox. Which is, <laughs> I mean, it is. Absolutely brilliant. Now, I defy you to watch that and not laugh out loud. The wit, the cleverness, the script writing is some of the most sophisticated scripting I have seen. And that came through, I think, the Australian Film and uh, the um, Children's Television Foundation. It's It's so good and so Australian. Geraldine, it's fabulous to talk to you, and you're always welcome on the show, and uh, it's great that you've given us your, your time. But before you go, we've talked about Artie's future. What about Geraldine Doog's future? Oh, well, look, I think about it. Look, I probably won't keep working at this rate. Um, you know, you, staying as a generalist on top of things is is a bit of a challenge. I'd, uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure, Lex. <laughs> I won't be. Uh, I won't continue forever. I won't. No. <laughs> oh well, I, I was hoping that you know not not only would the ABC have another ninety years in it, but that uh, you'd be there for the next ninety years, and I'd be listening <laughs> for the next ninety years. <laughs> I hope all of those things come true. Geraldine, thanks so much for Look, your time. Thank you. It's an honour to be invited on. Thank you very much. And now it's time to have a cuppa in Jeff's Cafe, where people of different ages talk about the theme and interview of the day. So we've just been listening to that interview there with Geraldine Duke, uh, about 90 years of the ABC, and to discuss that even further in the cafe today, we have uh, co- collected a an amalgamation of different generational uh, responses. We've got three wonderful people in the cafe today to um, to lend their their tongues to what they think about 90 years of the ABC. So representing Generation Y this week, we have Mr. Marty himself, audio engineer. Hey, Lucky. We also have David from Gen X, and we also have Faye, our boomer, for today's cafe session. Hello. Thank you all for joining me. Faye, I wanted to start with you. 90 years of the ABC. Now, that's a long time. And now I remember the ABC growing up, mainly Rage. But I wanted to ask you, what were some of your earliest memories of the ABC? Oh, I haven't actually thought about this. I'm not actually 90. Um, (laughs) (laughs) To tell you the truth, I'm not absolutely certain that we listened to ABC radio when I was a child. We must have a bit. Um, But I think. I actually liked the serials on commercial radio. And so I think probably Play School when my sister was watching in the 60s. I didn't know Play School was on in the 60s. Marty and David, did you guys both grow up on Play School as well? or Yeah, but, but uh, as delivered by the BBC. So my experience of the ABC was when I came to Australia, which was in 2006, and uh, so very late in in the organization's history and I gravitated towards it because I was looking for some sort of analogy to what I was familiar with. So SBS 
and ABC were my go-tos. But I think that I think everybody talking about the ABC reflects the idea that this institution mirrors us, and it's bit a bit like we're part of a family, and we trust the ABC, but we're quite cantankerous about it, and we we have standards that we expect it to meet. And that's why we get annoyed with it sometimes. I, do, are you more annoyed with the ABC than you are with, say, Channel 9, or do you just not expect anything from them? I don't watch Channel 9. But with the ABC, um, like some of the people that, that Geraldine referred to, um, I'm not upset about it being woke. Um, but I do, I understand it struggles because of all the expectations placed on it by different tribes. I think journalists, uh, and uh, I know that journalists doesn't describe everyone at the ABC, but the people responsible for content production, I don't think it's just ABC where they have that sort of myopia or they're in their own bubble. I, I think it's like all, all the channels, they're all, um, cause a lot of people start in the ABC, then they go work at channel yeah, nine or yeah. channel seven or something as well. Yeah. I, I, I guess it comes back to, we hold the ABC to a higher standard because it's a public broadcaster and we're funding it with our taxes. And one of the things that struck me about the interview, and I thought I thought most of it was front loaded. I mean, after sort of halfway through, it, it lost me. Um, and I thought that uh, you know the point that Geraldine made about growing older, keeping your ego in check, younger people not necessarily understanding that, not knowing when to pull back, when to that that idea about balance and navigating broadcasting generally, and keeping a balance and knowing when to step back. I thought that was a quite ni- a nice little analogy for growing older generally. Anything that one does as you get older, you learn that it's not about you. It's it's more about enabling the people around you than it is about that, about you. If you're a musician, if you whatever you do, really. And I thought that was that was an interesting point that she made. I agree with Geraldine that the best thing the ABC can do is to be centrist and to keep being critical and evaluating what is being said and evaluating sources, but also that there's probably been too much emphasis given to news and current affairs. And I think 90 years of the ABC means that this has become a cultural institution and that it's not just the news and current affairs that are important to us, that there are I mean, it's as a national broadcaster, it's doing emergency broadcasting. It's still producing drama or commissioning drama. It's still got its music arm, and that's been really culturally important over the years. And it does stuff that the commercial stations don't do. I do think we have a love-hate relationship with the ABC to some extent, but I think it's more trust and love than hate. Indeed. Well, thank you all for joining me because you always know in the cafe the ABC is running 24-7, specifically Rage because that's all we listen to. Thank you very much, Marty from Gen Y, David from Gen X, and Faye, uh, Gen B, Boomer. I hope you will all join me next time in the cafe, maybe for some ABC3 kids. Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) See you all next time. Thank you all for listening. See you. See you, everyone. Bye-bye. And now it's time for Nostalgia Town, where we speak with well-known older Australians about the journey they took that makes them the person they are today. Patty, we have a fabulous guest taking us through Nostalgia Town today. It's Kate McClymont, a journalist on the Sydney Morning Herald. She's been one of Australia's top 
investigative reporter since the early 1990s. Her specialty is in uncovering corruption, cronyism and nepotism in union, sporting and political circles. She exposed the salary cap scandal at the Canterbury Bulldogs Rugby League Club. Other revelations led to a five-year jail term for former Labor MP Eddie Obeid. National AOP President Michael Williamson was forced off the party's national executive after Kate's investigation into the Health Services Union's East Branch. Colleagues admire her fearlessness in the face of threats to her safety and her ability to pry information from reluctant sources. Kate so far has won five Walkley Awards and also has been awarded an AM for her services to journalism. Kate, thanks for joining us today. It's a great pleasure and honour to talk to you. Look, thank you so much, Lex. And it's actually nine Walkleys. <laughs> nine Walkleys. Oh, I'm going to have to do some investigation into how this arose. Don't want to undersell. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a million nine Walkleys now. Um, by the end of this interview, it'll probably be up to 10 or 11, I would imagine. Kate, the thing that intrigues me, and I have to say, at what point does your investigative journalism become when you have to balance up exposing corruption to exposing your family to threats, when does it become reckless? Oh, dear. I, I'm, I'm glad my children aren't here listening to this interview <laughs> because, um, you know what, it, it's funny. As you get older, it's far more liberating when your children are themselves young adults. But um, when they were little um I used to make them come along with me <laughs> to, <laughs> to do stakeouts. I remember once um, there was a big mafia meeting happening at um, a restaurant and I made my children and my reluctant sister-in-law and her children to come along. And I said, don't worry, they'll never suspect families <laughs> having pizza. And I got one of my young children. I said, you go over there, you take photos of them. They won't suspect oh, you. Oh, no. Does Docs know, know about I'm, this? A family that does stakeouts together, you know, sticks together. That's right. There was a couple of times when I had death threats um, either delivered to my house or on one occasion I had the police call and say, look, there's been a credible threat and you need to get your family out of the house. And I remember going to the Herald and saying, um, oh, God, look, this terrible thing's happened. You know, we've got to move out of the house. And I said, um, you know, look, can we go to the local uh, Medina apartments? And they said, no, too expensive. And I said, oh, okay, well, what about you know, some other place? No, not in the budget. <laughs> so the, the Herald ended up putting us in this terrible um, a city apartment next to the cinemas in George Street, and I lasted one night and I thought, you know what, I'd actually rather die. So... <laughs> I think then they just got um, security to stand outside our house. But it, mm. it does, uh, I always think back, no, not in the budget. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear, oh, dear. It's been an amazing career, Kate. Uh, what led you to journalism in the first place? Look, like a lot of things in life, completely by accident. So um, at university I was studying arts law and then I did an honours degree in the great love of my life, which is English literature. And I thought I'd just take a break from the law and I got a job in a publishing company. And it was completely dire because we were doing an encyclopedia of Australia and New Zealand. And I think in the 18 months that I was there, we got as far as C. 
So I typed my name into the Nobel Prize winners and quit. But sadly, they did have some editors who picked up the Kate Kleiner was not a Nobel Prize winner. Not yet. Um, and look, it was funnily, you know, I was at a party and I was chatting to somebody I just met who said, oh, I've just got a cadetship at the Sydney Morning Herald. And it was like a light bulb going, going off and I thought, you know what, that's actually what I would like to do. So the following year, you know, I rang her up and I got tips about um, you know, how to go about it, what they were looking for, et cetera. But the strange thing was was that I think the only reason I got the job was that the people interviewing me were most interested in the fact that I had a busking booth. Yes. <laughs> and the busking booth was questions answered 40 cents, arguments 50 cents, and verbal abuse a dollar. <laughs> and I used to make about $17 an hour, which, you know, this is 40 years ago, and that was, you know, really quite good money. So I think that they thought, well, if you can do that, because I don't have any other talents, unlike you, I have no artistic talent at all, but, um, you know, I can talk. So it wasn't my honours degree, it wasn't, and I'd also been working in community radio and I'd been doing um, work at local newspapers. It wasn't those things. I think it was my busking booth. Kate, before we go back and get nostalgic about the early days, just one final thing on on your brand of journalism. Do you how do you find a story? Did have you got a, a sixth sense that that you think there's something fishy here, there's something there's something worth digging a bit deeper? Did the stories how how do you how do your does your antennae work? It, like a lot of people, it's it's really the, the sniff test or the pub test. But it's funny how stories come to you. You know, I've got you know fantastic stories out walking the dog, where I've just got talking to somebody. Or um, one of my favourite stories. I know you mentioned earlier about Michael Williamson, the head of the health services union, who ended up going to jail for five years as well. So how I got onto that story was a member of the public rang up and said, you should look at this person, Michael Williamson. And I said, look, forgive my ignorance, but who who's he? And they said, well, he's actually the head of the Health Services Union and he's the national president of the ALP. And I said, yes. And he said, well, we're parents at the same school and as a union official, he and his wife have got five children at private schools. I'm doing the maths here thinking, oh, gee, five children at private schools. He and his wife, who didn't work, were driving top of the range Mercedes Benzes. But what really got my informant on the phone was that the Williamsons constantly outbid all the other parents at the school charity auctions. Uh. So, <laughs> so to him... That was the, the the clinch. And so that's, you know, I thought, well, I mean, and that is as good a reason as any to have a look at somebody. So, and it literally took about half an hour to, you know, do the necessary company searches. And I found that uh, he had, um, he was a director of a company which was being paid $1 million a year just to provide IT services to the union, and it just spread from there. So, 
you know, it, it doesn't have to be, um, you know, an earth-shattering you know, amount of documents arrive or anything like that. It, it just can be something as simple as someone outbidding everyone else at the school charity auction. Oh, wow. Kate, before you started your investigative ju- journalism, who came before you? I can't remember who, who did the sort of job you did. Oh, look, there's so many fabulous people. Um, Marion Wilkinson, Colleen Ryan, Wendy Bacon, uh, Brian Tui, the, you know, the fabulous people at the now defunct National Times. David Hickey, oh, they were... Um, they were fantastic and I used to love working with them. And, and funnily enough, I think I've got a job, I've got a cadetship at the Herald and then I went for two years to work at Four Corners as a researcher. And the week I arrived was the week that Chris Masters' Moonlight State went to air. So we're talking about, you know, 1987, I think it was. And it was just one of those um those seminal moments where I saw how clearly that long-form investigative journalism could really change things. So I worked with Paul Barry on stories on Alan Bond and also on um, on Blue Asbestos. And I think just being exposed to working with those people was, I, I think for me, the just opening a door into what, could be something really, really worthwhile. And then I came back to the Herald in 1990 and I've been here ever since. Kate, let's, let's go back a bit. And so where did you grow up? What was your what was your family background? I grew up on a farm outside of Orange in rural New South Wales. And my, uh, my father had trained as a vet and my mother was a pharmacist at the local hospital. And it was one of those households where um, my parents always encouraged us to have an education, and especially for women. I remember my father saying, you must always be able to, you know, support yourself, you know, have a job. Don't ever depend on somebody else to be paying for you. But it's interesting, you know, you look back now and I think, um, you know, living out of town, we had to get the bus home every afternoon. You could not miss the school bus. So my life fairly much revolved around the farm and doing chores and things like that. I couldn't, um, you know, hang around with friends in the local milk parlour or any of those. And, you know, being introduced to, you know, cultural phenomenon was really from my Sydney cousins coming to stay. They were the ones that that brought, um, you know, Neil Young records and, um, you know, and Bob Dylan and things like that. So we only had two television stations growing up. We had the ABC and we had the local CBN8. So it was not restrictive, but, um, you know, I used to envy, um, you know, my cousins who had four stations to choose from in Sydney. So, you know, we didn't get to go Mm. to concerts or see, you know, fabulous plays Mm. or anything like that. That all came, I think, when I went to university. And when you left Orange, how old were you? I went to university um, at 18. And and look, uh, members of my family still live in Orange. So, you know, I still have a tie there. And I have, you know, really, you know, I had a great childhood. And it was one of those things where 
it was reading books that was the most important cultural events in our lives. Like you'd catch the bus in the morning and you'd read your book on the way into school or, um, you know, visits to the library were the highlight. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, this is sounding like a very sad and depressing life that the visit to the local library was considered an absolute treat, but it was. Yes, and not at all. And, and you know, having come from a regional background myself, I, I must admit when my family moved to the city, I found it really difficult. I found it intimidating. It was big. It was noisy. It was... It was difficult. I found it really difficult to adjust. Did you have... Where did you move from? From Wagga Wagga. Oh, right. And how old were you? Uh, I was in I was in uh, my early teens when the family moved, and, and I hated it, I have to say. It took me a long while to, to adjust to city life uh, completely, and I just mm-hmm. wanted to go back to the country. I can understand that. Did you have similar experiences, Kate? Not really, because... I think it was the excitement of going to university and um, I was at Women's College at Sydney Uni, so meeting all these people from, you know, other parts of the country and from Sydney, I think it was kind of exciting, but I don't know whether it would have been um, much harder if I'd moved into a flat not knowing people I think that would have been really hard, but I look back on my university days as some of the happiest of my life. And funnily enough, it's friends I met at uni that I am still really good friends with after all these years. And, you know, we're now, you know, talking at least 40 years ago. Mm. So, yes, I think that that was probably... Um, you know, a, a seminal experience in my life. Did you discover, apart from busking, that's <laughs> a wonderful cultural experience in itself, but um, with that large amount of pocket money, did you start enjoying theatre or going to see plays, yes. music when you are in Sydney? Oh, absolutely. Um, I had subscriptions to the, the Nimrod. Um, you know, you'd go and see concerts. It was, uh, and, you know, oh, great fun. And, you know, I still love going to the theatre. It was, I don't know, you just sort of thought, I can't believe I'm sitting here and these people are only, especially that the Nimrod was so small. Mm. It was fantastic. Yes, I remember it well. Very intimate. They're great nights out and they're the ones you remember and have such an impact on you. You've mentioned your social connections or the connections you still have with people you went to uni with and how, well, they sound very, very precious. And it sounds like our show, we say get connected and stay connected. It's it's really good. Do they provide some of the fun in your life now or, or your oh, family? Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the good things about COVID was you realise the importance of both family and friendship. And one of the things that got me through, I know that you are going to roll your eyes, but I am a complete bridge fanatic. And the Mm -hmm. discovery that you could play bridge online. So we would play online and we'd have our phones on FaceTime. So we would chat and play bridge. And it was just something that you could do without leaving the house. And it was just fun. So um, I think just staying connected is so important. Like even just ringing people up and saying, let's um, let's go for a walk in the park and have a coffee or let's, um, I, I seem to be members of, um, you know, a book club, a share club. 
I play bridge. Um, <laughs> so I'm in a cooking club. So <laughs> I do, um, my children all roll their eyes at, um, but I, I, I love other people and I, I really appreciate friendships. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that, um, you know, it makes you alive and they're often very good sources of information. <laughs> Kate, would you, would you mind reflecting on, on the current state of journalism, particularly independent journalism? We've seen the advent of, of social media, which has been such an avalanche of, of in a way, democratic uh, news gathering, but also fake news, so-called, has taken over. How do, how do, how do we get to the facts how do we find out what is actually going on these days? Look, I think you still have to put your trust in many ways in in a mainstream media, and that's not in any way to disparage um, other uh, you know groups of media. But the thing is, we are bound by codes of ethics, and we also have to take into consideration you know defamation threats. When you read something in the paper usually there's been a lot of work done in order to get that to you. And I just, I I feel sorry for freelancers because, you know, I just could not do the stories that I do as a freelancer. I would have lost my house a long time ago in defamation actions. So I just think it's, it's, it's troubling that so many people get their news from Facebook and by doing that, you're choosing only the kind of news that you want to hear. You know, in the old days, you had to read papers or listen to radio bulletins. That's what you got. And you got a whole offering of things. Whereas I think choosing the kind of things that you want to hear is just, it's not good. You have to keep an open mind to things. And there are going to be things on news or in the paper that you don't agree with but you should at least listen to them and try to take them in and think about what people are saying and why they're saying it. It's good to to hear you speak. Just about books, getting back to your book reading, do you stay away from goodies and baddies books that are written by other people or are you happy to read other investigative uh, reading matters? Oh, no, I love to read um, yeah. other investigative journalists. And, in fact, I'm reading a very good book now by um, uh, an American journalist and it's called Empire of Pain and it's about the Sackler family and the opioid crisis. But, um, yeah. oh, no, I think, um, you know, there's so many interesting things out there to read. It's just not enough hours in the day. Mm. Do you, do, you confine, do you confine yourself to non-fiction or do you read fiction oh, no, both, as well? Both. Yes, yeah, so one of the books that um, has been really enjoyable lately is Anthony Dawes' Cloud Cuckoo Land. I know it's about 600 pages and it does cover from being on a spaceship to, um, you know, Constantinople in the years just post um, the death of Jesus Christ. It does cover a lot. But wow. he's such a good writer. What are you working on now, Kate? Just after I finish this, I'm just going to meet somebody who has some certain information for me, <laughs> oh, just about a political matter that I'm hoping will be very worthwhile. Do, do you find that happens now <laughs> that that people seek you out because of your reputation, that they that that stories drop into your lap? Uh, yes, and uh, look, I'm I'm very 
lucky that way that um, once people do know your name and also I just think it's important to, you know, behave ethically and deal ethically with people so that people actually do trust you. They know that, um, you know, if you give your word that certain information will stay confidential, you'll keep it. So I just think that, um, you know, that's been a steadfast um, key thing in my career and I think it served me well and should serve other journalists well is to, you know, always behave ethically. I know our, our reputation is not great but we should do our best. Yours is fantastic. Mm. Kay, thank you so much for your time today, for talking to us and being a, a part of Baby Boomer's Guide and uh, all I can say is don't forget to write. <laughs> well, thank you so much. It's so lovely to speak to you both. Thanks, Kate. Terrific. Many thanks. Pleasure. And now it's time for Money Extra, where an expert on a particular finance topic gives us a brief life lesson on money. Hi, I'm Noel Whittaker, newspaper columnist and author of 24 best-selling books, including Retirement Made Simple. Many people are confused about capital gains tax on assets that you leave behind you when you die. The good news is that death itself does not trigger capital gains tax. It passes the liability onto your beneficiaries who will not pay capital gains tax until they sell those assets. Let's suppose you've got $200,000 of shares, which cost you $100,000 a few years ago. You could leave all those to your kids and they would inherit the whole $200,000 free of capital gains tax. But when they came to sell them, their cost would be just $100,000, and that's when they would pay capital gains tax. This is why it's very important to consider capital gains tax when you're making a will. Some of your beneficiaries might like money and not shares, and others might like shares and not the money. So maybe you should talk to your family and see who would like the money and who would like the shares and then draw your will in the appropriate way. That's all for now. Take care. And now it's time for Stepping Out, where we speak with older people from around Australia, showcasing their communities and community radio stations and telling us why you might want to visit sometime. And today, we're stepping out with Judy Ann Steed from 3MDR 97.1 FM in Upway, Victoria. Judy Ann is a volunteer radio presenter on 3MDR, broadcasts from the City of Melbourne to the Mornington Peninsula, up to Gippsland, across to Geelong, Tasmania. Her show, Judy Ann and Company, is a mix of current affairs and cultural and culinary reviews interspersed with music. Judy describes her life as a licorice all sorts of adventures. Also a print journalist, advocate, bone therapist, and a professional clairvoyant. I should have seen that coming. Um, Judy Ann, <laughs> how'd you get involved in radio? Well, uh, just oh, a little over 31 years, actually, about 12 years at Southern FM 88.3, uh, based in Moorabbin at that time, and then I decided to take a tree change uh, from St Kilda, 30 years, up to Jembrook, uh, where Puffing Billy ends, so it goes from Belgrave to Jembrook. And so that's where I am, in leafy Jembrook. And what was your interest? How did you love being in the media? What prompted your interest? Well, 
many moons ago, uh, I tripped across to New Zealand, uh, to Wellington, and I was offered a couple of uh, positions, and one was in the uh, library, but when I went round to the library at the Dominion Sunday Times, he told me, uh, the head of the department, that we're very efficient here because when President Kennedy died, we threw out all the photos because he was dead. And I thought, <laughs> my goodness, I'm not working here. So round I went back to the editorial department to Frank Hayden, who was the editor then, and said, I think I'll become a journalist and I'll start off as a cadet. So within 18 months, I was credited instead of four years because I could do a few things already. And so that's how it all started. Mm. And what about at, at 3MDR, Julianne? How long have you been there? Well, 3MDR, let me see, take away 12 from 31. What does that leave you? Um, <laughs> and that's maybe 19? Yes, about 20 years. Um, so that's that's how long I've been doing it. And uh, Paul on the panel, as I call him, uh, he we do a news segment, first of all, for about uh, half an hour, and then we go to interviews, and it could be, as I did uh, this morning, it was on preserves and jams, and then we hit to the Melbourne International Film Festival, and then to a recital, but it could be about current affairs, we could be interviewing a politician or it could be anyone at all that I feel that listeners want to listen to and be informed, but in an entertaining way. Upway is where you are now and what a beautiful part of the world it is. Oh, it is. It's absolutely delightful. Uh, based in the Dandenongs, if people know where the Dandenongs are in Melbourne, it's about an hour's run from the city and uh, it's just a... You would not know where you were in the world, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because of the trees, the gum mm -hmm. trees and everything else. So it's, it's really beautiful. And what do people do when they go, they go to Upway if they're there for the first time? Well, I just introduce them to the studio and sit them down. Uh, I've done, usually at every election, I might have anyone up to eight in the studio uh, of various politicians or would-be uh, tryouts, if you like, and it might be a council election, it could be a state or a federal election, and we'll give them five minutes each, and then they can cross-purpose and e ask each other questions. So it can be very lively. <laughs> I bet it can. <laughs> Judy Ann, I'm interested in you being a clairvoyant. Uh -huh. How did that come about? How did that come about? How did you uh, know that you could see into the future? When I was about seven, my parents, you know, they would have family dues and you'd have aunts and auntie, uncles and things like that. And it turned out uh, an auntie was chatting away and giving her opinion and I thought to myself then, I thought no, that isn't what you mean at all and I went up to my mother and I said, mum, you know auntie so and so, she said da 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 but I'm sure that she didn't mean that at all I'm sure she meant da da and mum said, don't say a word say nothing and so I said nothing and it wasn't until I read a book on uh, on palmistry and I headed off for a holiday uh, in Fiji. And so I thought, oh, I'll try this out. So anyway, I was uh, walking along and a couple came past me 
and I looked at them and I said, would you mind if I read your palm? This is to the, the lady. And I looked at her hand and, I, and they said, oh, yeah, that's fine. And I said, look, don't worry about the IVF program, just relax. Everything will be yeah. fine. And they just looked at me with horror. And they said, oh, oh, how did you know? I said, I don't know. All I know is Ooh. I do know. <laughs> so it went on from there. And so I did, um, uh, in Ackland Street, I had a cook builder that diddled me of about 150 grand at the time, wow. back in the late and so I thought I'd better save my house. So uh, I read the palms and did clairvoyance in Ackland Street in St Kilda. And I thought, oh, it was about time I I uh, made this legal. I'd been there at least ten years, and it turned out that the Commonwealth Bank actually owned that part of the foyer outside. So I rang the bank and I said, look. Um, this is going to change the policy of the bank, but I need you to be in the boardroom and I want the CEO of uh, the Commonwealth Bank and I need your lawyer, I need your accountant and I need your PR person from uh, the Australian side and the Victorian side. And he said, oh, all right then. So he came back to me and he arranged the time, headed off to the boardroom. They had no idea why I was there. So I passed over my card and some stuff, and I said, look, um, this is how how it is. And and the CEO said, oh, maybe we should make it legal and we'll draw up a contract. This is for about about 12 feet by 15 feet or so (laughs) in the foyer (laughs) of the Commonwealth Bank in Ackland Street. And so the the lawyer said, oh, that'll be about $120. And I looked at the CEO and I said, no, look – I don't think so, do you? And he said, no, we'll make it a dollar a year. So <laughs> so a dollar a year, I was there, and I just said to uh, <laughs> the CEO, oh, by the way, have you got a sore shoulder? Because I also do bone therapy, so I fix necks and knees and backs. And so he said, oh, how did you know that? And I said, oh, well, I just do. Would you like to come over here for a minute and I'll fix it? So I fixed his back and then suddenly they all said, oh, look, my shoulder's sore. Oh, my knee's sore. So I did the whole room, (laughs) each of them. So they'll remember that day. And so I was there for another five years or so before I moved up to to Gembrook. So that's the sort of thing that, happened. Uh, (laughs) So there are all sorts of um, events that I've been to. I did the um, New Year's one for Channel 9 uh, for the producers of IMT, the second round. And so I had two hours they they gave me and I said, okay, I'll be here for a lot longer than that, but don't worry. So I took along my thermos of tea and so I was supposed to be there from 9 till 11 in this two-story uh, house in South Yarra. And all the entertainers were there, first-nighters, you know, and then they had all lay girls and all their entertainment. But I was upstairs in a bedroom. And so they started to form a queue. And by 11 o'clock, the two producers came up to me and knelt before me, mind you, 
and they put their hands together in prayer. <laughs> they said, Judy Ann, do you think you could you could stay a bit longer? Because they formed a queue outside on the stairs and none of them will go home or leave the stairs until they've seen you. And I said, oh, okay. So it was 4.30 in the morning, uh, New Year's Day, wow. when I finished. Wow. That's the sort of thing that happened. <laughs> Good on you. If we come to Upway, can you fix our bad backs? <laughs> oh, absolutely. I've Good, done that thank before you. people um, uh, who've been at the first night and the some of the performers they'll come up to me and say, look, I can't raise my arm. So there are a couple of moves underneath the arm muscles <laughs> there that yeah, yeah. free it up and they were wrapped. Okay, uh, it always seemed to turn into a, um, a healing session. <laughs> they all form a cure. It's lovely to speak with you, Judy Ann. Not only are you a fabulous radio presenter, but you're a, a, a Jacqueline of all trades by the sound of things. And we really appreciate your company today. And we hope that you might come and join us again. Meanwhile, we'll see you up in Upway. Thank uh-huh. you, Judy Ann. Bye. Cheers for now. Oh, Patricia, what another another blockbuster show. Gosh, it's going to be hard. They all, they're all going to be on the podcast and it's just going to have a, it's a competition which one gets downloaded the most. Anyway. Mm, navigating and paying for aged care, gosh, what a subject. That's what we're dealing with next week. Just, Justin Bott be talking to us about that. Yeah, that's in next week's show, along with Professor Ron McCallum, an advocate for people with a disability. Oh, what about, what's in Money Extra? The Money Extra, something that pertains to all of us because we, we all have a shock when someone near and dear to us passes and we face the very high costs of funerals. Stepping out with Brian Crabb of 2 R, and I've had my tetanus shot, so I'm going to visit Jeff's Cafe. That's right. And we're stepping out sideways with Brian Crabb. <laughs> See you next week. Bye. Baby Boomer's Guide to Life is produced on the Gadigal and Wongal lands of the Eora Nation in association with the Older Women's Network. Baby Boomer's Guide is funded by the Extra Foundation, which works to ensure that more Australians are confident making money decisions today and into the future. You can find out more by going to extra.org.au. That's E-C-S-T-R-A dot org.au. And don't forget, if you've missed any episodes, catch up on your favourite podcast app and online at babyboomersguide.com.au. Plus, you can join the conversation and have your say on our Baby Boomers Guide to Life Facebook page. Your Baby Boomers Guide to Life hosts are Senior Influencers of the Year, Patricia, Little Paddy Amphlet, and me, Big Lex Marinos. Get Get connected connected and stay stay connected. connected.